0: The scripture reading this morning is from the book of Psalms, Psalm 16, and if you have a Bible or a Bible app, you can turn there now, uh, otherwise the words to the psalm that we're uh, going to be studying together this morning are also in your bulletin. And just so you are aware, um, we will have time for a Q&A after the, after the message. Uh, I'm not going to give you Chris's phone number, you can just use mine. Unless his is in here. No, it's not in here. You can just use mine. My phone number is in in the bulletin, 905-517-0936. I'll relay questions if you text them. I'll relay them to Chris to answer. You can also, of course, raise your hand and just ask it on the spot if you like. Let's read Psalm 16 together. Keep me safe, O God, for in you I take refuge. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. As for the saints who are in the land, they are the glorious ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those will increase who run after other gods. I will not pour out their libations of blood or take up their names on my lips. Lord, you have assigned me my portion and my cup. You have made my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because He is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure because you will decay. You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. This is God's word.
1: All right. Good morning, Grace Valley Church. It's, uh, it's nice to be welcome back here. And uh, my wife and I, we're, we're happy to be here with everyone this morning and to fellowship and to worship um, and to grow. Uh, I know that we're all in different walks of life amongst our journey of faith. And this morning is but another piece of God uh, bringing us in that direction. A few weeks ago, I was uh, was reading through the New York Times. I have uh, I have this app on my phone, probably like a lot of you, though you might not read New York Times because you're thinking we live in Ontario. Uh, but here I am musing, and, and there's this inter- interesting uh, headline that was stated, uh, and it said this. It said that rigorous atheism casts a wasting shadow over every human hope and endeavor. I'll say it again, a lot of words there. But it said there on the headline, rigorous atheism casts a wasting shadow over every human hope and endeavor. And so I I went a bit further and I saw what conversation or what article was ensuing there. And essentially it was a response to something uh, that Christopher Hitchens, a famous uh, atheist uh, who passed away now, uh, years ago I believe. Uh, But it was a claim that he made and he said this and it it was quite a provocative statement. Um, being known amongst the atheist world. And, and actually someone who I think some atheists aren't very fun to read, but there's others where I think they're actually quite intriguing in what they believe. And, and Hitchens is, is one of those people that I, I've found intriguing. And he said this. He says, one, not, one need not to believe in God to believe that life has meaning. Indeed, when one considers the abundance of meaning and fulfillment to be had in art to be had in literature, in friendship, in love, in family, in respect, in compassion for one's fellow human being, the whole concept of God starts to look superfluous or unnecessary. This was Hitchin's claim here. And I guess the direction where I want to head this morning is really asking us and really pushing to the root that are we, for find, are we finding fulfillment in all these things that we just listed? Is all well in the world as God is being pushed to the fringes of our society, whether it be in schools, in our families, in our workplaces, our culture at large? And what if the world's joys cannot deliver the meaning and fulfillment in and of themselves? What, what if they're not delivering what we're trying to squeeze out of them? Instead, and I think this is probably true of all of our lives, myself included is that instead in the pursuit of these things they leave us disenchanted disillusioned at times very disappointed and there's probably a lot of notable figures and maybe us in this room today but one of the, one person who I found interesting and I enjoy football not biggest football guy but I remember Tom Brady at the top of his career uh, after winning you know many Super Bowls still to this day probably in a lot of people's mind one of the most You know, influential football players, MVP, millionaire. And at the very top, there's got to be more to life than all of this. You know, I'm at the top in in one sense of what the world may deem successful. All the millions of dollars, in the world's eyes, probably any woman that he wanted. All the notoriety, all the esteem. And there's a claim that he's saying there's got to be more to life than this. And I know that there's a myriad of voices behind him, and maybe us this morning at times we feel that there's got to be more to life than what meets the eye, of, of these things that we so desire to, to pull the life out of, and yet they leave our hearts, our hearts restless and unsatisfied. And so C.S. Lewis, uh, many years ago, and I believe that this is in our bulletin, he made this statement that I think is also profound, and he says that if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. We're made for another world. And so as we step into Psalm 16 this morning, I believe that we get this glimpse of this passionate man who has entrusted himself to God and found that in that his growing satisfaction is being fostered in the care of his creator. Now, maybe another way of saying this, in a simpler way, uh, is to say this. Is that David the psalmist, here in Psalm 16, expresses God to be his ultimate, number one, refuge in life. And number two, hope in death. His refuge in life and his hope in death. And so I want to look at these distinctives, though there can probably be a lot pulled out of this passage this morning but to see the first part of how David, how he found his refuge in life, and secondly, what was his hope in and death, and what might that mean for us here in Dundas at Grace Valley this morning. And so refuge in life is where I'm going to begin in the first six verses. The first point that I want to make in, in speaking about David's refuge in life is that David had a personal relationship with his God. A personal relationship with God. The basic thesis is that David's refuge in life is in God. And I don't know the overall context of where David was at when he wrote this psalm. We know that as we read through a host of other psalms, that his life was, trouble was often on his doorstep. Uh, There's many challenges. I imagine that the knee-jerk reaction of his heart at times Was to find the refuge of his life in Jerusalem, in the city that God had had him in, or maybe intellect in him being a warrior, just a man who might at times deemed himself sophisticated. But here it's profound that he's not saying these things of where he's finding his refuge in, but actually there's a resounding testimony coming from David's life that he's saying that it was in you, O Lord, that I am preserved in you. In you I take refuge. See, it wasn't a trust in, and I, and I want us to hear this this morning, it wasn't a trust in something that was so abstract in either a philosophy, it wasn't a trust in, a, in another program or the few things I stated before, it was his trust was in a person, this personal relationship that he had with God. And, and we can see this because in verse 2, as he continues to speak to God, he says, he says that you are my Lord. You know how often when we pray, we speak to God. We recognize that he's my Lord. There's this, there's this personal relationship that we're seeing expressed here where David, in a lot of ways, he the way that he would speak about God is that he, I, I sense his nearness. I confess my sins unto God. I'm grieved when I sin against my God. My When troubles arise, I go to him. And I think the truth to be told for a, a lot of us here, if I could draw a parallel, is and I know it's true of my life first is that we can go to church sometimes. We can get stuck in the motions of the Christian life. You know what to do. If you've been around long enough, you know the songs to sing, the words to say. And yet, we miss out on that relationship. We miss out on this, what God desires more than anything is, is created for a relationship with Him. And David here in fostering this idea of finding his refuge in God is not just, again, it's not just this philosophy or just saying the right things. He felt it. He knew it. He experienced it. Where are we this morning? Is there this personal relationship with God? You know, it's easy in our world to speak abstract about just God, and but no, he's not speaking in verse 4 about the gods who uh, Soar of those who run after other gods, he, he's speaking about the living God. He's speaking about the true God. For, for those of us who have been singing through the songs, we see that this God revealed in Jesus Christ is the God. The, the, the other gods are, are no gods at all. It's not enough for us to know just the doctrines of grace, to sing the right songs, even to be in the community. We have to know him. To experience him, from him. More than being amongst the covenant people, he knew that he was in covenant with God. And it's out of this place that I, that I, I believe that David truly realized that he has no good apart from God. You know, it's one thing to, to say that, but what, what does it mean as, he, as in verse 2 here, then he says that I have no good apart from you. David here, in God, he's saying, my soul is satisfied. In God, he finds contentment and security. In God, his heart rests safely secure and is at peace. And this is quite a statement to say. You know, who of us can say here this morning, I have no good apart from God. Because surely we wrestle with things. And our heart, by default, is so quickly to wander after things and to want to see that there is good in other things. And I think that's true because we actually, as we read on here, David is saying that something that it may look contradictory, but it's actually not. And saying that as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent one in whom is, in whom is all my delight. What is he saying here? I thought it was, I thought God was his portion. I thought it was God the only one that he delighted in. But there's something important here, and I want to I draw something out from this, is that Because God satisfied the heart of David, because David found his contentment in God alone, he was actually able to experience all other joys because it it was truly rooted in God. All other joys, including the relationship amongst the saints, was but a derivative. It stemmed from his joy and his relationship with God. But the problem is, is that we so quickly become consumed, and I'll say this for myself first, that we so quickly become consumed with love for other things. To find good in the other things apart from God, as, as Hitchens was saying at the beginning. We, not believe, we, not, we may not be here this morning just believing in literal God, uh, God beings of beauty and wealth and pleasure, and fertility, maybe as we'd seen so explicitly in the Old Testament. But I will say this: we all live for something, and if we live for and love other things more than God Himself, we grow weary, exhausted. We become trapped, and the reason we become trapped and ensnared by this, these things is that we have to have them. We feel it's it's almost like a hamster on a wheel here, just running after these things with this elusive idea that they will. Sa- we become restless. We become depressed. And I think that this is why in verse, in verse uh, 4, he's saying that the sorrows of those who run after other gods shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or even take them on my lips. We become ensnared by these things. We have to have them. So we run after them and grow exhausted, but only leads to increased suffering. For life inevitably takes them from us. Disillusionment, dissatisfaction. And I think one of the re- areas I've recognized in my life is I've pursued other things. I've pursued even the joy of being in ministry. Surely if I get this pastoral job and my wife and I, we can be on mission for God, that's where the joy is found, right? That, that's where joy is. If I can only get that position, then, then, then I'll find rest. no or another career, or maybe if I could get into that relationship, maybe as a young person, maybe as an older person, there's joy in that. And and, and what happens? Maybe when we get there, this, this isn't what I thought it would actually promise. This isn't the joy that I thought was actually there. And I believe that God in his long suffering allows us to experience that type of suffering in our lives, to actually see how it's just ash in our hand that one day just blows away. That there's no substance to it. So that in that pain, that in that suffering, that in that dissatisfaction, we can look to him and say, God, there's nothing good apart from you. God is so merciful in how he deals with us, and yet we, we so often lose sight. I so often lose sight. He's the one who satisfies. And so David finds his refuge in this personal relationship with God. But not only this, secondly, so we move on in the passage, David not only, and and like this, uh, and, and like personal relationship with God, but I believe he's pushing it a bit deeper here. Secondly, David not only says that the Lord is his Lord, but that also he is his chosen portion, his cup. He says to the Lord, you hold my lot. I mean, maybe this is some language here that you would never say in your prayer life. But there's something he's getting at here that I think is so profound in saying that the Lord is my chosen portion. It seems to evoke this image that, uh, and I won't get too much into this, but for the tribes of Israel, that the Lord had allotted certain lands and places where they would be. But for the Levites, the portion was that it would be God himself. That that would be, in a sense, the land that they would... He's pointing to the fact, and I want us to hear this, he's pointing to the fact That he is exalting in God's sovereignty over his life. Again, David has hes had enough trouble in his life. He's run away from Saul. He's been hiding in caves. More trouble than probably we could ever experience in our life or maybe on par with what we've experienced. But at the end of the day, he's rejoicing here in a God that has given him a beautiful inheritance. How is this congruent together? How can a man with such trouble with people trying to kill him, probably sickness beyond belief at times. And he's saying here in this psalm, the lines have fallen in pleasant places for me. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Isn't that something? Is that reflective in our lives at times when it seems that a wall has fallen on us? We say, God, you're my portion, you're my cup. The lines have fallen in pleasant places for me. And this isn't to ne- negate the fact that there are other Psalms where there is a complaining heart, there's an honest heart, there is a. But at the end of the day, the trajectory and the focus of his heart is saying, God is sovereign over my life. God has not abandoned me to this situation here. Whatever I'm in doing right now, that somehow the goodness of God is intricately involved in that. Do we believe that? Do we feel that? When we're sitting. You know, when we're sitting in the doctor's office and we receive news that, you know, that just one day things were fine, the next day it seems that things have fallen apart. And through the deepest possible pain, we can say that, God, you're you're still my inheritance. You're still my portion. You're sovereign. You're my sovereign Lord. Is he still our portion this morning, no matter what we are going through? And can we, through the deepest possible pain, make this claim before him? I don't know where we are with our current situations, our jobs, where we live, our present trials, but we can say as we, as we look to the Lord for our refuge that the lines have fallen in pleasant places for us. And so David affirms God as his sovereign Lord, not just being in personal relationship with God, in intimate relationship with God, but he sees God as his sovereign Lord and that his life is providentially ordered. That his life is providentially ordered. Now, my last point in, in speaking about David fostering this refuge in life is actually in verse, is in verse 7 here. And he goes on, and just some, there's some wonderful statements he's saying about his, uh, of, of just finding his, his hope and protection in God. And he goes on to say, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night. Also, my heart instructs me. We see here that David is speaking of the Lord as his trusted counselor. And so in those times that we've been speaking about, of, of deep trial, of deep confusion, where do we turn? We turn first to the therapists, to our counselors. Do We turn first to even the friends around us who seem to have a lot of wisdom. And I'll say in all these things, these are good things. These are things that I've used been to counseling myself at times there's there's times where we, we just we, we need to go to those places but i wonder with all the self help that is being promoted and, and even within the church how often we we so we skip over of just pouring our lives over god's word of pouring our lives into the scriptures and, and seeing this redemption that we have in the gospel and meeting god there first looking for that hope there Finding that help there. This is not an thing, insignificant thing David is saying. It colors everything else that we're talking about this morning. The way that God is our refuge, the way that he is David's greatest good, the way that he is our sovereign Lord, it all ties in that he, he's a trusted counselor. He's our comforter and he sends his spirit to lead us in the most difficult of times. And so do we find the sufficiency of God's words in the night season of our lives when we lay awake at our bed at night? We're struggling. We don't have the words to say. Do we bless the Lord who's the one who can give us counsel, who can lift us out of the miry clay in those night seasons of our lives and instruct our hearts? I pray that we learn. I pray that Whether it be days or years, we struggle, but we do not give up in those seasons. But we see that he is our trusted counselor. And so as we've gone through these first three points in looking at David's refuge in life, a lot of commentators, as they've gone through Psalm 16, they find a break in the passage. They see that there's there's something striking that we find in verse 8. And so for the first part, we find David's refuge in life. But now I want to turn to... His hope in death, the hope that we, that we can find. And a lot of them, they, they do overlap, but what, what is David's hope in death? And so, as we find here in verse 80, he says, That I have set the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. That God was his rock, that he was the rock of his salvation, that no matter what he was enduring, he set his eyes like flint upon God to see that in that his life would not be shaken. But what's so interesting about this passage here and about these claims of, of, that will continue to go on is that if we point forward a thousand years, if we're to point forward of, of this verse that was actually set again by the apostles, we learn that there's actually a deeper meaning, that there's actually a different direction that's being taken, and it's this. In Acts 2, uh, the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit falls upon the church, Peter stands up and he begins to preach this very passage here. And he begins to preach that actually David, though, though this passage was David's declarations before God, that actually th- this passage was pointing forward towards Christ. That Christ would be the fulfillment of this. And the way that we see this here, and I, and I want to, in speaking about our future hope, is to mention three things about this passage. It's first to look at our, uh, as God, as our advocate, the assurance that we have in God, and finally, our anticipation. And so as we look at this passage, and as I'm saying that it points forward, we see that for the believer, who is at our right hand here? It's Christ. At our right hand, that He is our advocate. That in Jesus' life and death and burial and finally resurrection, it's in him that we can look to as our advocate, and that when charges are brought against us, we feel that we're wallowing in our sin, when we feel that we are being shaken, we look to the life of Christ, we look to what he how he has committed himself to us. And we see a greater king even than David, even than David, to be our advocate. And so I don't know where we are this morning. I don't know where we feel shaken. I don't know where you are of even at times of feeling condemnation in your own heart. But I want to say even as Peter on that day read back to this messianic hope to say that Christ is our advocate because he loved us. Isn't that a great hope that we have? Isn't that an awesome hope that we have in the gospel that charges could be brought against us? We might feel like, where's our security in life and death? But there's a future hope that actually he's our advocate now, but in the day to come when we stand before God, we don't have to face the wrath of God because of Jesus. Because he took our sin, because he took our shame, because he took that condemnation, and he stands at the right hand of, the God, uh, the right hand of God, and he's forgiven us. He intercedes for us. And nothing can separate us from that love. And I feel that when this takes deep root in our hearts, it changes the way that we live our lives. This advocacy of one who someone's at our right hand, either in court or support in battle or a companion for a journey, that person is Christ. But it's not, he's not only our advocate here, but as we read on, we find that he is our assurance. And so in verse 9, it says, Therefore, my heart is glad. After all these things that have been said of who God is to David, and even not knowing this messianic hope that was pointing forward, necessarily, it says, "My heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure." Here we are coming back to this idea of security. Is our security in things a- apart from him, or is it in him? In Christ, we have a solid rock in which we stand. And we know that this points forward to him because because Peter and Paul are looking at this and they're saying, but David did die. David was one who wasn't the holy one who would live forever, but actually that in the line of David, this king would come, one who is greater than David, one who we could actually truly rejoice in, one that we could find our flesh dwelling secure. And how do we know this? Because Christ went to hell and back in a sense for us. He paid that price for us. He secured that glorious hope that we can have in not just dying, but rising from the dead and pledging that just as he rose from the dead, that we also have that future hope, that one day we will also be raised with him. I know we kind of sit here this morning, and maybe these they sound like lofty things. This is, this is an incredible hope in a world that sometimes seems like it's a sinking ship. In a world that sometimes it seems like it's hard to stay afloat, we find Christ as our security. Our flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. For the one who places their life in, in Jesus' hands is the one where he will never be abandoned. You will never be overlooked in a sense that your soul will be abandoned to Sheol but that he holds us. He holds us together. He is our assurance. And so we don't need to fear death. We don't need to fear the many trials that come upon us because we know the hope that we have. Whether sickness comes upon us, whether there's strife within our families, whether there's difficulties that pound upon our lives, we look to this hope, we dwell secure, and see that God will not abandon us because we see he didn't abandon his son. And lastly here, believe it it points forward to this great anticipation that we have. That the best is yet to come. If we look in the last verses here, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And I don't know about you, but there's, there's certainly joys that we experience in this life that God has given to us. But I want to say that these are, are but a signpost, a foretaste of what is actually to come. And in saying that, that we can anticipate a greater resurrection because Christ was one who died and was rose again, and, and to say that in Him, we join, He joins us to Himself, what is to come. And I think that this is why Paul could say that our current sufferings pale in comparison. They're not worth comparing to the glory that will one day be revealed. Has His kingdom come? Yes and amen. But is it still coming? Yes. And one day we will be with Him face to face, that we will truly be a resurrected people, a people imperishable, a people in unhindered fellowship with God where there's where there's fullness of joy in His presence and at His right hands pleasures forevermore. And I feel this is... A message of the gospel in which we speak of when we have this kind of redemption in Christ, this far surpasses any joy, any glory, any counterfeit glory that the world could ever offer. This is a future hope that David set his heart on. And so where are we today? Do we rejoice with David that all the exaltation in God is not only possible now, but for forever Because Jesus, our Messiah, was not abandoned to Sheol, that he was not not left and and, uh, separated from God, and his body not to see corruption, but actually he swallowed up death for David and he did for us. And it's the hope in which we sing these songs this morning, in which we pray, in which we look to him to say that God is our glorious hope. That in in this, this is the glorious hope for our communities, for our cities, for our nation, for our neighbors, all these wonderful things that we're speaking about. And so we find as we trust in God, and as we trust in Christ and what he's done for us, we find that refuge in life and we find that glorious future hope that is in him. Let's pray this morning. Lord. Uh, We thank you for your word, God. We thank you that it's true that this isn't Chris's opinions uh, on the matter, but we thank you that a thousand years after this psalm, God, that you sent your son to come and to live among sinners like ourselves, to die a death that we couldn't, and to be raised up, Lord, surely that no man could ever do. And in that, offering us pleasures forevermore. A life that is unshaken and secure in you. And so wherever we are this morning, I pray that we wouldn't look for the counterfeit glories of this world to find our satisfaction in things apart from you. But that actually in you, we can find life now and life forevermore.